there's promise, there is hope that America can change from this drug prohibition standpoint and be more open and actually, you know, change the tides towards drug legalization, all drugs. Why are so many people, especially people of color, having to raise somebody because their loved one passed away from drugs or they're behind bars for drugs? And the answer became very clear. The answer is, is because of drug prohibition. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. This is Christopher Moraff, and you're listening to Narcotica. For decades, the African-American community has had a complex relationship with drug policy reform. No community has suffered more from the war on drugs. During the height of the drug war, a third of black males were incarcerated or under supervised release, according to the ACLU. Yet during the 1980s, when a raft of new federal drug laws sparked the largest prison boom in U.S. history, many black leaders complained that their communities were still under-policed. Charles Rangel, the Democratic congressman from New York, reportedly called President Ronald Reagan soft on drug crime. While much has changed since then, the black community remains conservative on a number of drug reform issues, including supervised consumption and decriminalization. Today's guest, Veronica Wright, used to even oppose marijuana reform. That is, until a chance encounter at a family funeral inspired her to form the National Coalition for Drug Legalization which calls for the legalization and regulation of all drugs. Before we get to the show, though, just a reminder that Narcotica is a listener-sponsored program. If you like what you hear, check us out at patreon.com slash narcotica. Veronica Wright, welcome to Narcotica. Yeah, thanks for having me uh, today, Chris. My name is Veronica Wright, and I'm founder of the National Coalition for Drug Legalization. Okay, that's that's uh, that's great. That's a topic that's certainly more um, in the, in the dialogue um, as as overdose prevention sites become uh, a, a reality. Uh, safe supply has certainly become the next uh, great hurdle to 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 uh, ending the overdose crisis. And from there, I think full full legalization. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell me um, a little bit about? Uh, your pathway into this world. Um, were you always in, in the harm reduction field or did you find an entree into it in some other way? No. Um, so I used to be someone who didn't believe in m- even marijuana legalization. And then um, my cousin passed away in around 2017. He was born dependent on drugs. He went to prison for drugs. And he later died an alcoholic. And at his funeral, I met his son for the first time. And I didn't want his son to be like his dad. So I made Desmond make a promise. I said, if you graduate from high school, you can come live with me, provided that you work and go to school. So Desmond kept his end of the bargain. He came to live with me after high school. He was 19. And it was uh, a learning experience for me because I don't have children, but I turned into mama bear because, you know, it was on him. Like, did you do your homework? Did you turn your assignment? Did you go to class? 
did you go to work? You know, take a bath, you know? And it just made me think about, well, why am I going through this? Why wasn't Dwayne here to see his son graduate from high school? And why are so many people, especially people of color, having to raise somebody or take care of someone because their loved one passed away from drugs or they're behind bars for drugs? And the answer became very clear. The answer is, is because of drug prohibition. We're, we're, we have no love and compassion for drug users. And in Dwayne's case, and that's my cousin who passed away, mm-hmm. you know, he should have never went to prison for drugs. What he needed was mental health and lots of drug rehab and social supports. And when he got out of prison, he had a felony on his record and he, you know, you, you know that the situation was that you can't sure. get any federal assistance, whether it be, you know, housing, money, you know, whatever. So yeah. he was totally dependent on us until he the day he died. And, you know, it's it's, uh, it's worth noting that that sort of my entrance into the reporting world was was reporting for the Philadelphia Tribune, which is our, our African American newspaper here in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And so so I I started just reporting on general like issues in marginalized communities and and, and minority communities. And mm-hmm. and that that led me directly to the war on drugs because so many of the problems that that uh, plague communities of color and, and communities that are of low income and you know brown and black people especially, you, you can tie directly to the drug war, you know, be it ha- having trouble getting a job because of a felony record, um, the increase in women in prison because yeah. of doing something for their boyfriends. And I think that's really important to make that that connection. Um, it's also worth making the connection that that, that the African American community has traditionally been very conservative on this issue to some extent. Yeah. Um, um, so how do you how do you um, how, how what's your reception been like among the community among your community? He, uh, like you said, cold and and conservative. Uh, I I know I had reached out to because uh, I used to be very active in NAACP, so. One of the, he was actually the state conference president, and he tried to connect me with a branch president here in the local area. And I said, hey, I have a nonprofit. I want to talk to you about drug legalization. This is really something that Black people should be on board with. And um, she never returned my calls. And then there was another lady um, because I had wanted to, in Baltimore, you can adopt a lot, okay? They have a lot of vacant lots. So you can adopt a lot and I wanted to plant flowers on it, you know, plant grass and, you know, have a manicured garden with flowers. And then I'll have a little sign on here saying this lot, this garden was maintained by the National Coalition for Drug Legalization. Well, in order to do that, you have to go to the neighborhood presidents and get their permission to adopt a lot in their neighborhood. And she was very defensive when I told her that my nonprofit is about drug legalization. She didn't want to entertain it. And she was like, oh, well, you can talk to our our association and see if they will allow you to adopt a lot. And I tried to schedule a meeting with her. I could never lock down a date. Mm. Wow. That's the experience I, I remember reporting, even on drug treatment, is, is there's this, this, a disparity, a really stark disparity that there had been in people of color in treatment, um, because it's uh, a lot of church, a lot of dependency on church and, and you know, um, more, and that kind of 
avenue, you know, more than MAT, medication assisted treatment, which has finally become a mainstream kind of, uh, you know, therapeutic intervention for, for uh, opiate use disorder. So, so that's, that, that evolution is happening. I think it's happening slowly. I also want to um, commend you for saying that, I don't, what's the child's name that's living with you, Desmond? Desmond. Was born drug dependent because I noticed in your emails to me, you used the word addicted. And um, those, two, those two are very different things. And um, it's, it's, uh, it's important to, to note oh. that a baby, a baby can't be addicted. You know? Cannot be addicted. Yeah, yeah actually, uh, so it was Dwayne who was born drug dependent. His son, Desmond, lives with me. And he wasn't drug dependent. Um, so actually, I don't know if you're familiar with Urban Survivors Union. Oh yeah, yes. In fact, we've been oh. trying to get them on uh, for a couple of weeks now to do. Oh, a, well, I should to connect you talk. with Mikey G. So Mikey um, G and I are really yeah. close, and uh, he corrected me. He was like, "Make sure you use the word drug dependent." Yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing how many people misuse that with the best of intentions, but it's just what we're used to hearing, you know. So, um, how long, how long has the organization been in? You know, when when did you found the organization? And and do I understand that you have a symbiotic relationship with Students for Sensible Drug Policy? Or? Yeah, I started an organization in 2019, mm-hmm. and. Um, Really, you know, this organization is in its infancy, but we've been able to develop relationships with people. So uh, I have, you know, we do like these public forums. I have one at John Hopkins and I partner with organizations like Students for Sensible Drug Policy because they're able to get the room for me and they're just um, so supportive. And so we did one at George Washington last year, um, the end of this month on April 27th, it's going to be at John Hopkins. That's sold out. Dr. Carl Hart's going to be on that panel. Um, other organizations that have partnered with me is the Reason Foundation, uh, LEAP, Law Enforcement, Law Enforcement Action and Prohibition. And so the coalition is building. You know, it's not, it's not just me. And we come together on projects. So uh, last year, I, I reached out to a couple of people in this space, in this drug policy space, because I wanted to do a drug legalization pilot study, I mean, a drug legalization handbook, excuse me. And so in this handbook, it gives you like some general guidelines as to you know what it means to legalize drugs, like how we can legalize drugs. And so... I found people like Dr. Jeffrey Myron from Harvard University, Dr. Jeffrey um, Singer from Cato, um, Mikey G from Urban Survivors Union, Neil Franklin, he was the former uh, CEO for LEAP. And each person took on a chapter. And then when we completed the handbook, the Reason Foundation said they will take, take it on and you know um, publish it. So they're in the process of editing, editing it so that it can look more professional and just ready for prime time. So I'm really proud of that handbook and I can't wait for that thing to get published. So uh, I mean, if you, can, if you can show the data that, you know, this crime is associated with drug trafficking, then it's going to start getting people to think, okay, you know, how are we going to eliminate drug trafficking? Just like we 
eliminated, you know, all the crime that's associated with alcohol prohibition. When we legalized alcohol, the mafia had to turn to something else. They turned to drugs. Most of the violence that you see in the community, I'm almost willing to bet you that is associated with drug trafficking. And that would be eliminated or significantly reduced if drugs were legal. Right, right. Drug users themselves commit generally petty crimes, um, you know. Well, it's not, uh, it's not theft, drug users. Yeah. It's, it's the drug sellers. That's what I'm getting Yeah, right. Right, yeah. right. I'm saying that like, it's, it's the prohibition that leads to the shootouts, you know, and, mm-hmm. and um, but, you know, and there, there's also a lot of crossover between drug users and drug sellers that gets um, sort of lost in the, in the rhetoric of drug policy, that there's this class of drug sellers that are uh, mostly black and brown men that are that are preying on this this uh, unsuspecting public, so to speak, that, that then getting them hooked, and that and that's just a that's just a, a propaganda narrative, really, that that yeah. was born out of racist drug policies. Yeah. Um, and and like I said, like this all kind of revolves around so many of the issues facing um, lower income and minority communities, and that have to do with reentry, that have to do with schooling. Um, there's data that shows that you know juvenile delinquents that 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 quote unquote juvenile delinquents that engage in economic crimes like mm-hmm. which would include drug selling are more likely to stay in the criminal underworld and be arrested by 18 than than you know delinquents that that do graffiti or, or you know break windows or things like that. So it's like once you get it's like the minor leagues for 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 even more um, serious crimes. And I think we underreport a lot of the people that are in prison that are in prison that are tangentially connected to the drug trade somehow, but you know their crime might not be drug related that, that they're in for. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Although I did see um, a report from the Federal Bureau of Prisons, and they came right on out and said, you know, this is what we're throwing people in jail, jail for. And, and, you know, these are the people that are going to prison for these crimes, and the majority of it was drugs. The data is there. But people oh, yeah. And to ignore it. And I think for a while there was, there was, uh, they, they didn't count crimes that were, that were drug related. That, you know, if, if you shot somebody, you know, say it might have been over drugs, but that would get counted as like an aggravated assault or, or right. you know, <laughs> so, you know, so, <laughs> so. If we were going to collect this data, you know, the, the police department, they don't report it like that. So that's going to be a challenge, getting the data. So, so really, this is a, this is a, and I, I noticed uh, your, your, um, your email is keep drugs legal. And I meant to ask you, uh, is, is that just a, a, a sort of a wish for the future? Or is it, is it, um, is, it is there something to be uh, read into your choice of, of, of words there? Well, that's something for the future. I mean, I mean, drugs used to be legal at one time in America. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I wanted something that was easy to remember, but also I wanted something that was going to evoke the message that I'm trying to send through this nonprofit. And that is we need to advance the conversation about the legalization of all drugs. And, you know, I mean, I say advance the conversation, but really I want to legalize all drugs. So keep all drugs legal. You know, now in your, we're not, in, we're not in there your, yet, but. Right, of course. I mean, although we are there in the sense that there are Schedule II drugs that could be substituted for, there are drugs that, 
if doctors could prescribe them to people that have habits or that are dependent strictly for dependency, it, it, we'd go a long way in doing so, like the audit and some of these, some of the things like that. Um, but um, in in your vision of what uh, a drug legal a legal drug regime looks like, um, how do you imagine it it happening? And I'm sure that you get this all the time that you you must have thought out what what a regulated market looks like. Yes, I mean. Of course, you have to be at least 21 to sell, to use drugs. We're not advocating, you know, drug use by children. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. We're, you know, doctors would be free to prescribe drugs if they thought that, you know, um, it was going to help you, you know, so they couldn't, they couldn't go to prison for their, um, you know, choice to prescribe drugs, of course. You could sell drugs, much like you do with alcohol and marijuana, it would be regulated in similar ways. Um, the taxation, I think that's an important point to bring up about what the future of drug uh, legalization would look like, you know, would not be excessive. Because if you, you know, create a market where, you know, drugs are heavily taxed, you're just gonna keep the black market and you're not gonna really see that much change in the reduction of crime or overdoses because people are just gonna go to the black market and get what they need for less. That's a very good insight because I think that's happened in the marijuana market a lot. Um, and you know, you have these boutique uh, dispensaries where they're like, you know, specialty blends that, that you know, and I, I remember going into one in Colorado and saying, Okay, so where's like the old English 800 of, of weed? Like, you know, I'm seeing like the high end beers here, you know, quote unquote, but there's no lower end, cheap, cheaper alternative. And that, that's just going to push people right back to the street for, for a cheaper alternative. And so, yeah, that, that's important to point out. And the other thing I want to add, and I'm looking through our drug legalization handbook, our unpublished, I wrote a chapter, and it's like one of my most favorite chapters, and it's called, um, I'm scrolling down to it. I want to make sure I have the, the ethics and ethos. So in this chapter, I highlighted some, some guiding principles that lawmakers could use when they're thinking about, okay, how we should legalize drugs. And I'm just going to read, you know, some of these guiding principles. Mm -hmm. One should be love. Recognize love is an action that does not punish drug users with criminalization, but promotes understanding, accountability, and responsibility through compassion, patience. The other one is happiness. Acknowledge that each person's choice to do drugs should honor life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. For those who are in recovery, we should accept that perhaps abstinence is not the goal, but happiness. Mm. I love that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've got, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to bore you with all of them. Um, strong families, stronger communities, uphold the family. The current war on drugs has destabilized so many families, leaving many parents to raise their children behind bars. We should work to create drug legalization laws that will decriminalize substance abuse and poverty and strengthen families and the communities in which they live by providing economic resources, education, and social support. 
Yeah, those are great. I mean, I think uh, I think that um, what what the drug war has done to communities, um, particularly communities of color, is is uh, is nothing short of disastrous. I, I mean, the collateral consequences uh, of of children playing. You know, I spent a lot of time in Kensington, which is here in Philly. It's our drug. You know, it's our largest drug open air drug market, and I, I saw it as maybe six and a five year old playing. Um, they they had the the gate the the gate up at their with their alley and they were playing like jail and 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 co and I thought like oh um, that's like these, these kids are playing this like at this age and that's their game you know what I mean and, and it just it, it broke that's my all heart they see. and prohibition has yeah. helped to create that because we lock so many people in their community for drugs and you know I, I guess the one thing that I want to you know emphasize with you and to all of your listeners is you know, the National Coalition for Drug Legalization, you know, we, everybody that's come together, we understand that, that with freedom, there is responsibility. So we're advocating for responsible drug use. You know, we want people to be free to use drugs, but there's also that responsibility piece that people need to take into consideration. And that's a great segue into the, into the alcohol um, question. Now, I, I always point out to people, um, we don't have a context we, we need a full re-education campaign, right? Because we don't have a context for what responsible drug use looks like. We mm-hmm. know what responsible drinking looks like, right? Because we, we, we know the guy at the, at the party that's wearing the lampshade on the head and the, and the person that's there having a couple of drinks and, and talking to their friends. We can distinguish, a, you know, like a quote unquote um, sloppy drunk from, you know, like a, a, a social drinker or something. But when we think about crack, we just think about one thing, one vision comes to our head. You know, we, we don't have a, we don't have a context for understanding what, what non-problematic drug use looks like. And I think mm-hmm. that, that, that would be a big part of promoting an education campaign. Yeah. And part of my journey, educational journey is, you know, I've come to recognize there's a difference between drug abuse and, and recreational drug use. So drug abuse is when you, you can't take care of yourself and your responsibilities in life. You're, you're not going to work, you're not paying your bills. You know, you're just not taking care of your responsibilities. That is drug abuse. So you may not, you right. know, recognize that person at the party who's not paying their bills. You don't have to when you, when you learn that, you know, this person has problems functioning, that's drug abuse. Right, um, and so and and so many of those problems though is is uh, it's it's such a it's such a contradiction that so many of the problems so we describe addiction as unmanageability and yet so many of the unmanageable um, impacts of drug use we Im- we impose through policy like yeah. arrest and and um, of course stigma but you know I, I remember you know trying to explain why we well. If somebody is not doing something wrong, you know, a young black youth, why would they run from the police? Well, because mm-hmm. for 72 hours, they can fuck your day up. You know, they can fuck <laughs> you. can lose your job because you're not showing up for a shift. You know, they don't need, they don't need to charge you. They can just grab you up and, and, and you're, let you go in, you know, like 24 hours, but you've lost your job by then. You've got, you know, an arrest and a court date and, you know, or whatever, whatever, you know, they might not charge you, but it doesn't mean that they can't screw up your day. And, Part of, I think, white privilege is that we have the ability to, well, you know, as a white man, you know, to uh, talk to my boss and, 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 you know, and explain what happened or, you know, 
there's not as much of a, of a uh, there's not quite as much to lose by being by like wasting 12 hours of my day talking to a police officer that got it wrong right oh yeah yeah you brought up a very good point that's, that's the other side yeah. oh it's a complicated issue i you know i just know that um there there are a couple of reasons why i support drug legalization you, you're it's it's a tool for public safety you know you're you're going to protect the drug supply and thereby reduce the number of overdoses. You know, it's a tool to reduce the number of incarcerations that you see in this country, especially among black and brown people. It's a tool to reduce the violence that you see in those communities where drug trafficking is endemic. And, you know, how well, keep we keep families together, you know, keep families together. I mean, it's, I mean, I see so many benefits and also, the one, the other thing that I got that motivated me to start this nonprofit is originally I had wanted to do research because I have two master's degrees. I have like an MBA and I have one in biology. So I like science. And um, I wanted to know about the industrial uses of cocaine. Like what else can you do with cocaine other than, you know, use it for recreational purposes. And that's how I met Mikey G because we had a mutual friend that connected us. And uh, he was very active with the Urban Survivors Union at the time. And then, you know, he was like, well, I don't know if I can help you with this right now, but, you know, we'll stay in touch. And a couple of months later, he was like, hey, you know, I've met someone. Uh, he is uh, a public policy analyst at the Universidad de los Andes in Colombia. And we want to look at the coca leaf as a therapeutic agent for COVID-19 patients because the coca leaf, you know, it's this is a plant where cocaine is derived, but it's been around for thousands of years. You know, um, native indigenous uh, peoples have used the coca leaf for things to help with like oxygen deprivation, to stave off mm -hmm. hunger. They put it in, they make it into teas, they've made it into paper, um, to help with, toothaches. I mean, this thing, this leaf can yeah. do many things. And so I was excited about the promise of helping, you know, COVID-19 patients, you know, uh, with the coca leaf, but we never did um, get that off the ground. So and that is a schedule two drug too. That's a schedule two drug. That, so marijuana is actually uh, like more uh, is a schedule one as a schedule one drug has is shown to have no medical benefits, you know, according to, I guess, the, the, the DEA and the FDA until that changes, whereas cocaine okay. is still used by, in doctor's offices during, during those jobs and things like that as a local anesthetic. Even methamphetamine is a class two drug. It's used for um, in, in not great numbers, but for people with ADHD. And so my, yeah. we just need to get rid of schedule. And, and I, I'm just yeah. like, once we legalize drugs, it'll open the door for research. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's so many good things that can come out of legalization. I just see the positive. A whole new industry can develop. I mean, you look at the structure of cocaine, they have a lot of, you see a lot of oxygen, a lot of, I guess you could say organic properties. I'm looking at the, the actual organic groups, the substrates that makes it a very good solvent. Mm. You know, but what kind of solvent could it be good for? We don't know because you know, prohibition kind of closes the door on answering those kind of questions. 
so you're you're now publishing um this this uh, uh guide out, outlining your ethics and outlining the roadmap to, to to how this can be done and why it should be done looking through the handbook right now and so we just have chapters on like a therapy for drug dependence that's the one that jeffrey singer wrote uh, retail drugs how would you you know regulate that uh, licensing and distribution the role of law enforcement or policing see i'd love to get my i'd love to have a, a, a copy of that to look at and, and of course it's it's this has yet it's yet to be published but if you can share um that with with uh with me i you know i'd love to to see that because you know i get i get the question a lot um you know so what's the alternative and my answer is usually well I, i'm a journalist not a policymaker thank god i don't have to come up with one but <laughs> you're doing it and um you know and i've always emphasized that re-education campaign just because for 50 years we've been driven into our you know our children have been raised to believe you know t tell on your parents if they smoke weed you know what i mean and and um and uh i would like to see you know some other uh, of the more practical uh ways that that we um that we move forward with that because and and i also think it's important to emphasize the um the the uh the cultural um distinctions between um the african-american culture how the african-american culture has traditionally viewed this issue and and um how you, how you transition to a more harm reduction focused approach um, in that community that is so strongly tied to the church and 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 often will will go to the path go to their pastor with the problem before they'll go to you know a professional and and you know sort of do away with that you're trading one drug for another thing with with, with med medication assisted treatment which I hear a lot um, oh. and yeah. yeah. So Michael Gallup Hill from Urban Survivors Union, he wrote a chapter on education and research. And in it, he, you know, I think he addressed, you know, some of your concerns about what message you should send to the public. And he said, education of children should provide messages that balance what is known about the harms and benefits and include messages and strategies that promote harm reduction, moderation, and human rights. And then he said education for the general public should include messages that support diversity and inclusion of various cultures of drug use and promote human rights, dignity, respect, and include role models that display balanced lifestyles that include a, a range of substance use and cultures and include abstinence or could include abstinence. But um, mm -hmm. It, you know, it, you know, both of those statements evoke responsibility and just love and peace and just, you know, let's take a step back here and not be so parochial in our viewpoint about drugs. Let's, when we educate people, we can educate them about the positives of drugs and we, and of course the negatives. And I, I think Carl Hart um, did a, did a great and, and very uh, courageous thing um, in publishing the book and, and, and sort of coming out uh, in the way he did. Uh, we had him on the show, as, as, I, as I mentioned. Um, I pushed back a little just by pointing out that, that as, a, as a tenured professor, you know, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't have quite as much to lose. But what do you say to people that could lose their kids in terms of, because I, I do agree that, that, that functioning drug users have something of a responsibility to come forward and, and, and say, you know, like, you know, I use, I use substances 
and I'm I'm willing to say that on air. I use substances. I don't need to necessarily say what they are, and I and I and I am a functional person. But but um but you know, as long as we have you know a DHS regime so that's that 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 for for which drug use is in and of itself, I believe, a reason to remove children from the household. Um, there's there's these road these barriers within you know the structural system that that, that will need to be you know taken down as well along with uh, just the the education of the public. Well, I asked Carl that question, Doctor Hart. I said, you know, when you came out with this book, I mean, you you know, even prior to coming out with this book, you know, did you ever tell your children that you use drugs? And um, you know, he said, that's private. You know, he said, you know, his drug use, it, so the answer was no, you know, maybe I got it wrong, but when I, when we had the public forum, I'm gonna ask him again, cause he was like, this is one of those questions that kind of annoy me, but I was like, your answer is good. You know, it was your answer and people need to know what your answer is, but they may not like it, but you know, how did you break this news down to your children? And he was just basically like, you know, this is private, you know? Like I, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't tell my children that I use drugs. Right. You know. Right. You might, you might not tell your children how often you have sex with your wife. Either. You know, yeah, yeah. That's that's yeah. That's, that's how he viewed it. So I was like, well, that's an excellent answer. Share that. You yeah. know. Um. I know that when I started my nonprofit, I remember I was trying to get a marketing firm to help me, and they were like, "No, I don't want to help you because, you know, I have children and." I think that drug legalization would, you know, increase access by children. And it's, you know, how are you going to protect children? And, you know, most most kids that do drugs, they learn it from their parents. Um, right, or the, or the or their peers, their community. In my case, it was peers. Uh, but yeah, but, yeah um, if, if there's a healthy message. Like I said, um, I always have to check myself and remind the people that I speak to I'm dealing with the, a very low proportion of drug users, the ones that are transient and homeless. And, you know, this is not what your typical drug user looks like. This is just where the crisis is right now. Um, mm -hmm. There, you know, 80% 80, 80 of people that use cocaine um, do so recreationally and have no problem doing it. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, I, I don't know where I was going with that, but it's, 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 it's kind of like we have to start emphasizing, um, you know, the people that 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 uh, use that drugs. Use yeah, yeah. I know where I know where you're going with this. Yeah. You you're you're trying to highlight the fact that you know Dr. Hart represents somebody that people wouldn't normally associate with using drugs, but it brings back to your point. Most people that use drugs, eighty percent of those that use drugs, don't become, you know, addicted. You know, they use it for recreational purposes. Right. And see, I just use that word addicted. I see. I need education. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when do you use that word addicted, and when do you don't use it, or do you just never use that word? Yeah. No. It, 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 it's. I guess it depends. I take poetic license and call myself an ex dope fiend, but I wouldn't call anybody else a dope fiend. You know what I mean? It's. It's like. Um, but. But. Uh, because I believe you can be. The. The, the idea that you, there is a addictive personality is is, is a myth. But, um, you know, somebody that may have a problem with one substance does not—it does not mean they're going to have a problem with every substance. And that's been, we've been indoctrinated into that puritanical, um, abstinence-only AA system, which was created by middle-class white men, white male alcoholics in the '30s, and is completely anachronistic right now. 
Uh, it just doesn't apply to the crisis we have at the moment. And yet it's still probably the dominant form uh, of, of recovery, maybe not as much in urban areas with strong MAT programs, but uh, certainly when I was coming up and getting, trying to get clean and they're clean, that's another word I hate, but trying to get my life together in the nineties, um, that's really all there was. And nobody ever told me there was an alternative, which is to me, medical malpractice. <laughs> Um, you know, I would go, you know, if, if you go to a, uh, if you go five times to a facility and you fail every time, um, keep coming back. It works. If you work, it just isn't, you know, if your cancer doctor said that to you, you would fire him in, in, on, on the spot. So, so, what, um, so what's people, the alternative, right? So what's the alternative? Right. So, like, you know, it, at that time it was methadone, you know, and oh, for, okay. for opioid use disorder. Right. Nowadays, it's uh, with you know suboxone, mm-hmm. uh, and we need to we need, you know if that's for people that want to uh, stop and 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 just just kind of taking that mythology of the trading one addiction for another because you're not um, you you know I was able to buy a home and and get and get a job and and get married and, and completely restructure my life as 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 a recovering person on medication assisted treatment. You know, something yeah. that I couldn't have done. Yeah. And in Switzerland, they have the heroin assistance treatment program and, and no one, I mean, that, that program works fine, but they make sure people have housing and a job. Yeah. Housing first is important. Definitely. Yeah. So um, uh, I, I would love for America to get that far along at very minimum, but um, it, the road ahead of us is long. But I, the fact that we have about 82 people that sign up for this public forum on the 27th, I mean, it's maxed out. I mean, the, the maximum number of people that can sit in that room is 72. And I'm and 82 have signed up. And, you know, we know that there's probably a, a good probability that not everybody that signed up is going to show up. But because Dr. Hart is going to be there, I just I'm very intuitive. And I, I just feel like it's going to be a lot of people there. So the fact that so many people sign up means there's promise, there is hope that America can change from this pro- drug prohibition standpoint and be more open and actually, you know, change the tides towards drug legalization, all drugs. There is hope. Well, yeah. Hope. Yeah. If you told me when I was 18 years old that that, that marijuana would be legal someday, I, I would have said you're crazy. You know what I mean? It, it, mm-hmm. it is progressing, you know, in in the right direction. And it's progressing, um, it's progressing yeah. and money is a big factor. So I'm so glad I was able to connect with Dr. Jeffrey Myron because um, he studies the economics of drug legalization. And so that leads into the next thing that I want to do with uh, with the coalition is to do a pilot study within the state of Maryland. So Jeffrey Myron, he's the chair of the economics department at Harvard University. He's also a strong advocate for drug legalization. He, you know, studies the economics of drug legalization. I brought him up to say that, you know, marijuana, I think one of the motivating factors for why so many states have legalized marijuana is because of the money. And, you know, and eventually it, that's how it's going to be for legalization of all drugs. It's just a matter of and time. And it has to be retro. It has to be retroactive. If, if you're in jail for marijuana, you know, uh, that, that something that happened prior to its legalization, it's really not it's not justice that you should sit out your sentence as as marijuana legalization expands in your state, as far as I'm concerned. Um, 
Most um, definitely. I'm, I'm there with you 100%. So what's the next step for your group? Um, obviously, this is an, an uphill battle. Um, where, uh, where are you based, first of all? Um, are you Maryland. In Clarksburg, yeah, Maryland. Maryland. Um, and what's what's the next step? Do you have any local politicians on board? Any any state politicians? Has anybody um, yeah, you know come out to sort of promote this position that you know? Not yeah. We we do have one very progressive politician. Um, he does support legalization of all drugs. His name is Delegate David Moon. But um, you know when when Pete France and I came to him, so you know we want to do this pilot study. He was like, I need to see a coalition of organizations and people that want to do this. And I was like, oh, most absolutely, you're, you're going to get that. I mean, we, we already have that to a certain degree, um, all the collaborators with the handbook. But, um, you know, I want to, I think he's looking to see more local organizations since he's a state mm -hmm. uh, legislator. So I'm working on that, just trying to get local organizations to come on board and say, we want this. And tell me about the pilot again. What, what would the pilot be? I mean, the, the pilot would just be, you know, I mean, I don't I, I, I don't know all of the parameters because we haven't worked it out yet, but basically it would make all drugs legal, I mean, for a certain period of time, like three, four years, just to dip our toe in the water. Mm -hmm. and, and, and see, you know, what works and what doesn't work with legalization. And, you know, basically just proof of concept. Hey, you know, the world is not going to fall apart because drugs are legal. And by the way, look at all this wonderful tax revenue that's coming in. Put it to good use. Something like Hamsterdam on the wire, like a, a section of the, of the so city. He, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if you I'm saw very that familiar. So Pete <laughs> France, he, you know, you know that he is very critical part of the wire. Because that ham that police officer that allowed for Hamsterdam, that was mm -hmm. him. Oh, that's him, huh? Okay, yeah, I didn't that know that. Him. His name was Pete France. So, um, well, what a great fa public face for that. <laughs> it's, it's, um, he, he was on board with it, you know. Yeah. So I think you know I would have loved to bring him into the podcast. Maybe that's the person you should interview next, so that you can understand. I would you know? love to talk to him. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. He's wonderful. Um, so yeah, I think I think that would be a great place to start. You know, a small pilot in a, in an area of of the city or the whatever the state, and um, and and I guess you, you see production being made, the production being um, from the government, or we, we rely on, you know, would we go have meetings like with cartel leaders and and sort of oh, like create I mean, it? I, that's the thing. You know, you do not want to be dependent on the cartels or illegal, you know, organized crime um units responsible for your drug supply um i found an inspiring story uh, from dr jeffrey singer because i you know he posted this on twitter there's a doctor in canada her name is dr christine sutherland and she was able to sell little small packets of fentanyl to her patients and she was able to get a pharmaceutical company to supply you know these fentanyl packets for her. So, I mean, ideally, the legalization of pilot study, you would need, so, I mean, I, I would think you would need a pharmaceutical company to partner with. Um, you can get research exemptions too for, you know, if a, if a I think Columbia University for a while was, was, was doing a, a study where they were, you know, 
providing pure unadulterated heroin um, to, to people. Um, so yeah, under the research exemption, I think you, you might you might find some 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 luck there um, if you partnered with it. That's yeah. why I wanted to talk to her, Dr. Sutherland, because how did she get this pharmaceutical company to say yes? Because you know, in this day and age, so many pharmaceutical companies are getting sued for the opioid crisis. They may not want to be, you know, getting getting into the business selling drugs. They don't want people to try to sue them. Well, that'll right, part, right. That'll be part of the legislation, you know, you know, use that at your own risk. You can't, you know, you know, sue pharmaceutical companies if they're if they're following the rules for standard, you know, um, for for purity and potency standards, for following quality control measures. Right, um, but I mean that's one of the reasons I am also against you know suing gun companies. If somebody misuses a gun that has a legitimate purpose and shoots somebody with it illegally, um, you know, the gun manufacturer made a gun that is a machine for a, per a particular use. Somebody mm -hmm. uses it wrong. Somebody uses it poorly or uses it aggressively and, and, and not for, you know, uh, it, it seems to like going after the manufacturer in much the same way you're talking about, you know, the, the fentanyl. If, if you're being prescribed something in a, in a dose that is uh, that is stable and regimented and, and the dose doesn't vary because it's, it's you know, it's purely ma it's made properly. Um, they shouldn't be held accountable if somebody doubles that dose and, and, and gets, right. and, you know. So I want to make um, sure the protections for the manufacturers, whether it's pharmaceutical companies or, you know, someone like, you know, you or I that, that come together and say, you know, we want to manufacture drugs. Right. Um, well, I think you've opened our eyes to a lot of a lot of a lot of stuff to think about here. Um, uh, it reminds me of um, th there were at, at times I've heard through the grapevine, like buyers clubs where people from a certain city or town like drug drug user unions and you might want to ask some of the urban survivors folks about this we get together and sort of pool their money and go directly to um the source and you know get what hey look we want pure we want heroin only you know and, and with the right leverage you could they could do that um, that's the closest i've ever seen to like a group effort to to stabilize their their um, supply and make it consistent but I, I think that we could, yeah, we could go a long way to, to lowering overdoses if people knew what, what, what they were getting. Well, you need drug testing. That's another part of the, the uh, handbook. You need opportunities for people to get their drugs tested. And I believe the Urban Survivors Union, they have, um, what do you call it? Why is the name of this machine? I was a chemistry major. I cannot think oh, of mass it. spec. Yes, thank you. They have the mass yeah. spectrometer machine that drug users can use to test what's in it. And I mean, we should have that anyways. We're lucky enough. I'm part of, I'm part of a program in Philadelphia. We're lucky enough to have a lab that works with us that we, we test in near real, near real time. I'd say a week, you know, we can get a sample back and, and, um, and, and we've done about 400 uh, drug samples so far, and it's been very useful in, in both dispelling myths um, about what's in the drug supply from, both users and law enforcement, and also, um, you know, catching trends ahead of time, like like the xylazine trend, which is, um, you know, a tranquilizer that's being used as a cut in, in dope now. That's that's really kind of problematic. But um, but why don't you uh, tell me where people tell tell our, our listeners where people can find you on the web, and um, when you expect your your um, handbook to be to be published and available for the public? Yes, the handbook. Um... 
I am going to have a meeting with the Reason Foundation because they said they couldn't get it done by 420. So it's just like, I don't know when this handbook is going to be completed, but you can find me on www.nationalcoalitionfordruglegalization.org. You can also find me on Twitter, Veronica Wright 8, the number 8. And you can email me, keepdrugslegal at gmail.com. All right. And that's uh, Veronica Wright, who's um, trying to make America safer for uh, people who use drugs and um, push the, the, the envelope forward on drug legalization. Um, so thank you so much for being on the show. And um, we look forward to uh, returning to this uh, in a couple of years when you have this off the ground. And, and uh, it's, it's been a great success. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for having me. So I can oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, okay. All right, thank you so much. Okay, Veronica, good luck. Bye-bye now. All right, talk to you later. Hey, thanks for listening to Narcotica. A big thanks to our patrons over on Patreon for making this show possible. We have a growing list of supporters, and we really could not do this show without them. So thank you guys so much. And if you like what we do here, maybe you would consider joining them. Patrons get some free stickers as well as access to a 30% off on our new merch store. Which, if you didn't know, we have a merch store now. You should totally check it out at narcocast.myshopify.com. We got some cool mugs. We got some cool t-shirts. We got some cool stickers. Narcotica is an independent production by Chris Vermarath, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah. Additional music is by Waves, and Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. Give us a like and a follow wherever you get your podcast, and be sure to spread the word. 